0: Welcome to Farming God, a podcast that goes to the places and speaks with the people of America's spiritual revolution. Cultivating a compassionate language conducive to asking bigger questions to foster a shift in cultural values and expand our political imagination. (laughs) I went camping in the Boundary Waters the wilderness and conversations that filled my time led me to consider climate change in a new way. The story includes a conversation on Naomi Klein's 2014 book, This Changes Everything. Links to it are in the show notes. Smoke signals at farminggod.org. So here we are, a clear lake in front of us, a thick forest behind us. The tents are pitched, the bags organized, boots and socks drying on a rock in the sun. There's no one but us within miles, and obviously no cell service. We're standing around an unlit fire. Of course it's not lit, it's noon. Why am I even looking at it? Ryan is about to say something. We make eye contact. Pause. Silence quickly look away. There's nothing to do, and it's scary. The Boundary Waters are a series of protected lakes sprinkled on the U.S.-Canadian border in the northeast corner of Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota, but never visited the Boundary Waters until last week. After a four-hour drive from Minneapolis, A group of five guys and I arrived at a bunkhouse outside of Ely, Minnesota, where we spent the night. The fluorescent lights, triple-decker bunk beds, and signs that read Group Leader, Responsible for All Bunkhouse Damages made me feel like a Boy Scout again. Except this time, I was the real deal. I, like the great northern fur trappers who had gone before me, was preparing to enter true wilderness. No more earning badges for bowling a strike at the White Bear Bowl or slaps on the back for making it through Mr. David's haunted hayride without crying. This was adventure. We woke up early Saturday morning. The air was crisp and quiet. I found myself jogging up and down the stairs, to my bunk, to the bathroom, to the breakfast area. Hey, free coffee, to the water spigot, to the bathroom and eventually to the central lodge where we loaded the van scheduled to deliver us our bags and canoes to the edge of a lake. From here, we'd begin the journey to our campsite, which consisted of a 10-minute portage followed by a one-hour paddle, followed by three more portages and three more lake crossings. For the next two days, we explored, fished, and talked We covered the big things, religion, politics, and our place in society.
1: I feel like a lot of us, myself included, are trying to cope with this existential transition that's happening um, in gender roles, in family roles. Because as Donnie was saying, historically, men have been the providers, the breadwinners, the, the fixer uppers. the 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 general just kind of you know the the man of the house that's what you're meant to do and those kinds of roles are being tipped on their head and just and with good reason deflated um socially and i think our generation is the first generation especially um, those who live in liberal urban enclaves I'm glad you are that trying point up <laughs> yeah. This is not happening in South Dakota. I can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're trying to cope with that, you know? It's trying to kind of... There's this... Yeah, that, that change is happening, and it's like, well, we're not necessarily supposed to be the sole providers. We're not supposed to be the people who know how to do everything anymore. All of these responsibilities can and should be shared. And if they're not... Then ego and machismo are overruling. Steve, are you asking what we're going to do in our 40s and 60s? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, please, totally.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm more just generally pessimistic or optimistic about it.
1: I gotcha. I am optimistic. <laughs> but
0: but you sound the most pessimistic of all, though.
1: Only on an individual level do I feel optimistic. Do you want to say why? Uh, no.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a mistake.
1: <laughs> Trust me, you don't want to know.
0: <laughs> but we mostly talked about nothing. The best way to cut a bell pepper. How to tend to fire. This fish head broth better not ruin the curry. Every comment, statement, question, interrupted with another Pun. Can't forget the cashews.
1: Oh, yeah! The shoes! The camp shoes? Camp shoes.
0: The trip blurred together into a sequence of eating, fishing, paddling, and talking. At some point, Colin, the shoes man, referred to Naomi Klein's book as the environmental work of our generation. Bold statements from thoughtful people catch my attention, so I read it the week we returned. I wouldn't recommend consuming it at this pace. It's alarming, overwhelming, and frankly, depressing. Out of a need for companionship along this desperate road, I texted Colin, can we please talk about this book? He said yes. So a week after returning from the Boundary Waters, we met in a park on a Tuesday afternoon. Couples were laying on blankets, guys playing three-on-three. Three. In the distance, girls wearing pink, blue, emerald hijabs ran up and down a hill. The breeze was cool, but the sun warm on the backs of our necks, discussing our place amidst the changing climate. I mean, obviously, neither of us are climate change experts. Far from it. And I think that's it's not the point is for us to be experts. It's just to be kind of environmentally, what well, we are, environmentally conscious uh, 20-something-year-old men that are obviously have some sort of concern about the environment. Uh, yeah
1: i mean we're not complete lay people we have yeah. dedicated at least a portion of our conscious life academically to this very area of study
0: so i want to start with um i got to be the question master for a little bit just about like who you are because otherwise you're just a voice yeah really yeah. S- kind of just briefly establish who you are and then mm. Uh, it'll be a bit uncomfortable for me, but actually, like having more of a dialogue about Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, <laughs> which I just finished, and you're in the progress process of. So, who who are you, and what what do you do?
1: Um, my name is Colin Motchke. As Steve said, I'm a 20-something-year-old living in the liberal urban enclave of the twin cities in minnesota and what do i do like that question as we've discussed in the past but what do i do i like to spend my time growing and learning and and hopefully making other people's lives better and with those being my primary objectives, the environment seems like a very good place to start because this is one thing that all people share, whether we like it or not.
0: So, yeah. the my podcast is called Farming God, right. and I normally ask people about their spiritual upbringing. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask you, kind of?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, it's pretty unexceptional. <laughs> um, <laughs> grew up in a Catholic family, not a v- super-devout Catholic family, but we would go to church probably two to three times a month, and, you know, I was baptized as an infant like anyone else, and then, you know, ironically, my parents said that I needed to get confirmed, and then I can stop going to church, which makes no sense. <laughs> even I I didn't know what confirmation meant but I assumed that based on that word it meant that you were a confirmed Catholic that you were going to dedicate the rest of your life to that um (laughs) but I did the exact opposite I feel like after confirmation um I started turning away from organized religion and that was in part informed by one of my uncle's um uh his influence on me. we always talked about spirituality and he had been going to India every single year, spending about a month of every year um, at ashrams and would always tell me the teachings of the folks at those ashrams and I didn't really do much independent study on what he was talking about, but He was convincing enough for me to think about spirituality outside of the confines of organized um, religions. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I still enjoy going to church. When people ask me if I'm a Christian, I say no. But um, that's not totally true because when I pray, which I do on a normal basis... My, my prayer still is very Christian in nature, almost to the point of, well, it's Catholic in nature, almost to the point of, you know, making the sign of the cross when I do it. And that probably is just more out of habit than it is out of anything. So. Um,
0: you We both were environmental studies majors in undergrad. Right. You've decided to pursue... Uh, academia a bit more um what led to that decision and what what are you going back to school for
1: yeah um so after undergrad um I thought that I was well I immediately after undergrad I thought that I wanted to pursue academia and make um a career out of it you know become a collegiate professor and wear my Birkenstocks and tweed pants and grow my hair hair out and just do that for the rest of my life. Um, but surprisingly the first three years uh, after undergrad were extremely formative and helped me change my mind in that regard. Um, the first year after undergrad I worked in a university in Columbia so I kind of got a taste of what that was like. Um, didn't really like it mostly because I felt as though I was too much of a realist to live my life in academia. Um, where everything is too high, too high level, too macro, too theoretical. Um, I like to be on the ground and uh, in the trenches. And that's where I've been for the last two and a half years working a conventional nine to five sales job, greasing my hair, pressing my pants, grease in my shoes before every day.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, you look pretty professional right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And and I was doing that and, and to be frank, it was, it was taxing initially but then I feel like the wild animal that I was eventually became tame and I learned how to sit at a desk for that long and make phone calls and what have you and realized that there's impact in what you are doing in the private sector and had this big aha epiphany moment where I'm like, where I thought to myself, yes, I probably still need to be in the business sector, but I need to marry that with this undying passion for the environment. And what I was doing at that time, which was aquaculture related, just seemed like a complete and utter contradiction to any kind of environmental sensitivity. So then I went that way. And now, basically, I just want to get a master's under my belt so that I can more easily obtain a private sector job that's close to environmentalism. It's a damn long-winded answer.
0: And what's the program you're going it's into? It's called
1: Natural Resource Science and Management at the University of Minnesota. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so we, we're both in the throes of this book. I consumed it probably at an unhealthy pace okay um, um it was i was in eastern wisconsin and doing throwing firewood around and i had my headphones on so it was in my ears my noise canceling earphones for uh, like seven hours a day wow. i was listening to um, naomi klein talk about climate change so this changes everything i guess in short is um a book on climate change and extent to which that word climate change uh, branches out into which is <laughs> everything seemingly <laughs> so it starts off very alarming mm-hmm. and
1: yeah using these fear tactics the same sorts of rhetoric that you hear i mean in earth and the balance and in inconvenient truth
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't know where I mean it's so it's it's this is what i struggled with at first is that it's this huge topic that's extremely loaded with all these connotations when you say climate change it's like it's almost just like attached to kind of like liberal jargon almost like immediately you just go there and it's it's kind of like divided people this language that has separated into a partisan thing but as the book progressed it became clear that it's so much more than that and something you said when we were driving up to the boundary waters was that the f- idea that uh, the generation following us your my potential children won't ever see snow is something <laughs> that she eventually got to uh-huh. in her conclusion right which is this idea that it transcends uh, po- politics in any sort of way. And it's this deeply human issue that has been convoluted by extractive industry. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how. Could d- I
1: comment on that?
0: Pl- yeah, briefly? yeah, let's please interrupt um, me.
1: Uh, that resonated with me. Her kind of hu- bringing in this human component, and she literally uses the exact same anecdote of her child not being able to meet. The polar bear, or the moose, or something moose, like that—the yeah. uh-huh. moose in uh-huh. in that story she always read to her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that resonates with me. But I could also see a lot of people being disgusted by that. Yeah. That—that's—that's that's a little bit too human, and unfortunately, <laughs> in this in this um, this world where people avoid that level of pathos um that takes away your credibility mm-hmm. um so i enjoyed reading that but at the same time i just it, i could see a lot of people being repelled by those kinds of anecdotes really yeah.
0: so i mean where i'm but if we can't like it feels like that is the fundamentally the most human issue is like the future of our kin mm-hmm. almost so if that's not something that can bridge this partisan like the we're getting to a point where left and right socialists capitalists it's just not going to matter anymore like we're at this this issue that's so much bigger than these things right and like what could bring it back around if like kin children
1: yeah this this is i mean Probably a, a stupid point to make, but I think rhetorically you bring up an interesting thought and in that you know our, our primitive objective of any kind of species on planet Earth is to proliferate, you know, provide a home for, for the future of our children. Um, she could have changed her argument a little bit and pivoted more to the survival of her kin rather than seeing some kind of charismatic megafauna in the future. Because as soon as you talk about that polar bear that's floating on the ice, as soon as you talk about that moose that's developing a brain disease in northern Minnesota, that partisanizes it a little bit. It makes it seem like, ooh, we got some tree huggers here loving on these large animals again. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't talk about animals. Talk about people. Talk Mm -hmm. about how Naomi Klein Jr. might not know Might not be able to fill in the blank. All of these other things that could jeopardize her existence as a person. Yeah. You know, that is resonant. Uh That. Yes. Okay.
0: So I mean, she obviously spends a long time talking about natural, natural disasters, the increase in extreme weather. Right. Three points that kind of stuck out to me and I was always just kind of waiting for the like this just come on like get to the end I want to hear the solution.
1: Yeah. Yeah, where's the crux? Where's that that turning point in uh-huh. the, the language? Yeah.
0: It came eventually. Well, I think mm-hmm. we'll get to that at the end of this conversation. But three things that she talked about were divesting um Blockadia and the all encompassing love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh the idea of love. Ooh. What, a little gooey. yeah, um, I don't she only said it kind of like once love, but there was a lot uh, to s- kind of go around that, so divesting is pulling investments out of Exxon and oil extractive industries mm-hmm. and encouraging larger institutions who have large endowments to do so as well mm-hmm. um. I thought that was sort of encouraging. I mean, like, seeing that there has been some progress with large, yeah, especially universities doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, regarding that point, I, I'm very cynical. Um, it's s- starting the conversation by asking someone to move their money or refuse to take money from certain industries is a way of shooting yourself in the foot, in my opinion. That's not a good way to incite action, unless you're trying to. I mean, unless you're trying to convince someone who's already on the boat. You know, someone who's in the choir. Um, that's that's just me personally. I mean. You can't tell, especially money. That's the one one of the most emotive, sensitive things for anyone to talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. I I mean this, this lies though at the base of her argument is that we need a cultural shift. This is kind of the undertone for everything. So, um, she's sort of proposing this like post-consumer, uh, post-exploitive. Um, post-capitalist. Post-capitalist society that. Uh, the culture may shift to. And in that case, when people are very conscious, uh, this hypothetical case, when they're very conscious consumers, um, greed, I guess, takes a side seat. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay, I guess we can move past.
1: As aforementioned, I I mean... I'm too much of a realist to buy into this Mm -hmm. people will not be motivated unless there's a bottom line unless there's some sort of individualistic gain Mm -hmm. in their action or decision and therefore and that's what I'm a skeptic in reading this book already because I know that she's right in saying that we need A cultural, economic revolution in our future, otherwise we are doomed. Yes, I get that. It's a great thing to postulate, and yeah, whatever. But she's seeming to forget who we are as people in the United States.
0: Mm. So she makes it very clear that if if current, uh, norms continue, like what, what's going to happen? I mean, like if we don't dramatically cut carbon input into the atmosphere, like shit's going the shit Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. Um, so I mean, so by you saying that this isn't, this is, that you're a realist, that this is not going to happen, you're, you're in turn kind of like accepting that, um, sea levels are going to rise uncontrollably. Temperatures are going to rise uncontrollably. Famine's going to hit Africa like in a crazy level in like 50, 100 years.
1: Yes. We're, we're a reactive people. No. You can't take away personal liberties like driving a car from someone. You can't do that. You'll be shot. You can't tell someone that they can't take an eight-minute shower after their 11-hour day at the office you can't do that I mean you can't tell someone that they're gonna go to fucking Outback Steakhouse and not get a steak am I wrong I don't I don't think what well, so. I, I mean
0: it has been done times of ration um, in the U.S. and Britain, and I think it was embraced pretty wholeheartedly in the U.S. When like eighty percent of households had victory gardens, in the U.K. Um, personal driving decreased by like eighty percent, and train public transport uh, that was like the chance to establish public transportation. So rations have happened, but only in times of war.
1: Mass That's because there was. A unifying propulsion for these actions we don't the United States doesn't know what unity is there's no doubt I mean like and and as every year passes fewer and fewer people are agreeing on anything man so like Our psyche has changed too much to even—to make any of those anecdotes about wartime rationing relevant to today. I don't know. I'm sure Naomi Klein would agree with me in saying this. I'm sure you agree with me here, Steve.
0: Um, Yeah, we'll get to that. So, Blockadia. I I don't know. Have you— you got to this, no, I haven't. this no, part. I haven't. Okay, so Blockadia is on the success that specific groups have had in slowing down development of extractive industry so um, clogging up somewhere in the pipeline, right? Commerce of some sort. Yeah. Um, so,
1: so these were like little stories about uh, in the tar sands, for instance, uh, Native American groups standing up and saying. No, you can't come in here. You can't come into this forest, or, yep, or just other yep. kind of eco terrorists, as they're called, preventing the deforestation. Uh, le, I
0: think less terror. I don't. Okay. I don't think terrorist is being applied yet. There hasn't been much violent stuff okay. like the seventies, but yeah. Um, so she outlines the ability for especially ind- indigenous groups to call back on the claims of original treaties to slow down things and shows like the success that some of them have had in mm-hmm. doing so. Um, I mean, the pi- the South Dakota pipe, what was that one, like six months ago? The Dakota tribes blocking the, attempting to block the pipeline. Yeah, Dakota Access pipeline. Dakota, that access, would, pipeline. To, Dakota yeah. access, yeah. Regardless if that, if that, it didn't end up stopping the pipeline, yeah. but it definitely brought things to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And it's something that um, non Native Americans, at least some, it's it, like a small sect, seem to be uh, understanding of in a very small portion right now. Is mm-hmm. that, like, this is what we've done to Native Americans for hundreds of years, is mm-hmm. take things from them. How can we yeah. keep doing it? Mm-hmm. That isn't a time to start uh, reversing that cycle so it's indigenous led was a big one and then uh, a lot of blue green alliances uh, uh, you know like environmentalists Mm -hmm. uh, teaming up with labor union kind of things you have any thoughts on blockadia
1: yeah um, I, I haven't once again this is cynicism coming through and I did watch the feature documentary that um, kind of complements the book What's uh, if it, you haven't seen it do you it. remember what it's called uh this changes everything oh yeah, there's a documentary but, with yeah, it. yeah so oh, i'm okay. sure it uses the exact same case studies okay. that are in the rest of the yeah. book i actually watched the documentary before i even started reading this okay um but uh there was that turning point in the documentary just like there is in every single climate change-related book, something like that, where they start talking about the solutions. And the music changes, it goes from a minor chord to a major chord, and the intent is to, you know, start to make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside and think great things about the future. So this particular part of the documentary, um, they they have all of these very emotive protesters, um, you know all over the world all sizes shapes and colors and it does it, it feels good it feels good um, but i still have not been convinced enough of the success of these sorts of civil dis this sort of civil disobedience i mean you talk about dakota access pipeline what was the ultimate result you and i both know i mean
0: I mean, we're talking about it right now.
1: Yeah, we're talking about it. Yes, but the urgency that this book has doesn't allow for these kind of incremental things to happen. Yeah, there's progress. There, there's There's progress in talking about it, sure. But we're to a point now where shit has really got to happen. You know, and... Like I was saying before, these protests, anger, frustration, it just divides people more.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we've hit on blockadia, we've hit on divestment. Um, And this is kind of the final point, which things, um, she doesn't say directly, but I just summed up with love which is yeah, is terrible, overused, mm-hmm. too big of a word, and that's why I don't think she uses it. But this is basically a shift of cultural values, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we've kind of hit on so far. Um, f- and she focuses on her children and her inability to have her, it was a son, yep. uh, that she couldn't have and uh, ended up working. She says, efforts will be fruitless unless they are part of a broader battle of worldviews, a process of rebuilding the very idea of the collective, communal, commons, civil, and civic, after decades of neglect. The task is not just to articulate better policy, but to articulate an alternative worldview to rival one at the heart of the eco-crisis, which is interdependence over hyper-independence, Reciprocity over dominance. Cooperation over hierarchy. A deep capacity for compassion is only the possibility for civilization instead of barbarism.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I can hear the music in the background. Um, That (laughs) is a complete contradiction of kind of what is said earlier in the book. Um, she cites, I believe, either a sociologist or psychologist who talks about worldviews and just grossly oversimplifies the concept of a worldview and divides it into two separate groups. Hierarchi- egalitarian and hier- hierarchical? Hierarchical? Yeah, hierarchical? sure, whatever. Um, and... There's a pretty large portion dedicated to talking about how difficult it is for people to change their worldview, that's at least what this sociologist or psychologist is saying. So either she disagrees with this person, Mm -hmm. or she's just forgetting that she wrote that 250 pages earlier. I think
0: they her statement is that they come in flurries and they come during moments of crisis. Um, like she cites the 70s when tons of environmental age legislation was passed in like 2 years and what that was spurred by?
1: Collective impact. That's what it was spurred by. That's that's a foreign concept to humanity in the developed world right now. Like I said, there's nothing collective about what we do or how we act. I'm not I'm not <laughs> totally pessimistic about the future here, Steve. I don't mean to say that. What I mean to say is that this kind of argument for action doesn't work. It's too hopeful, completely unrealistic. We have to play by the rules of the game that we have established.
0: 500 years ago? Yes. Capitalism?
1: Yes. We have to play by those rules. And as we've talked about in the past, we can be these assassins playing the game of capitalism, but that's how we gotta do it. That's how it's gotta be done, because we gotta make things happen fast. The only way things happen fast is if we're scared as shit, A, or B, there's a lot of money in it. And one of those two things, well, we're going to be scared, so that's going to happen. So that's going to incite some action because some crazy shit's going to go down in our lifetime. But right now, we got to start focusing on that option B, trying to really sell the bottom line of environmental activism. Prove that there is money in being environmentalist.
0: So divesting in in larger extractive industries and reinvesting into regenerative ones?
1: Not necessarily. We don't need to completely deflate companies like Exxon and BP. You know why? Because they got so much power. Why the, we want them on our team. Why the hell would we just say, No, I don't want you playing with us. You're, you're big and mean. No, we want the big mean guys on our team. We just got to convince them how to do it. We got to be smart we got to sell them on this idea.
0: <laughs> it's, it's surprising at you as like, and, and always like a very environmentally kind of outside dude, you've seen, you've been around life, you're a hunter, you, you're outside all the time. Things that continue to grow, that are based on continual growth, that doesn't exist. That it'll all just come back around, don't you think?
1: Yeah, and and we talked about this, we don't want this insidious plan to end up biting us in the ass. But the fact of the matter is is we don't have any other choice. The revolution that Naomi Klein is talking about is not going to happen in 50 years. No, it's not. But we could easily get some big money folks and big money industries to make the right decisions if we can prove that there's money in it.
0: I remember returning to Minneapolis after the Boundary Waters trip. The six of us were standing on the corner of 19th and Como. The car unpacked, bags organized, boots and socks drying in the sun on the curb. The neighbor is drinking boxed wine on her porch. An off-duty security guard doesn't like the way we parked. And my phone's buzzing in my back pocket. We make eye contact with each other. Pause. Silence quickly look away there's too much to do and it's scary